Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 13, or 4 rather, Philippians chapter 4. If you got to 13, you'd be really high in Philippians. Um, Chapter 4, and we're looking at verse number 13 tonight. Uh, This evening we are still in this closing part of the book of Philippians, in which Paul is dealing mostly with the subject of contentment. And to be honest with you, I've had a little bit of trouble trying to come to the close of the book of Philippians. Uh, Today, the past couple of weeks, I've been working on verse number 20. And I thought, well, I can finish this thing out pretty quickly. But then I started there on verse number 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that thing just struck a chord with me. And so I've written two sermons on that particular verse, and I don't know, it may, may take two more before I can get done with it. So I don't know, we'll get done with Philippians sometime or another. But tonight we're looking at verse number 13, and here we find, as I've said, that Paul is speaking on the subject of contentment. He's just finished three chapters that, as usual for the Apostle Paul, contain some really great doctrine for the church, and he's in the process of winding the letter down. And it seems that Uh, Paul, even in his most reflective and contemplative moments, can't stop speaking about doctrine. And the purpose of this writing, or the writing of the letter, of course, is to encourage the church at Philippi. And uh, Paul wanted to give them some more Christian doctrines. But we've noticed as he goes through this this letter, especially in the last part, that there are personal elements to it. Uh, Paul is writing this letter like a friend writes to friends. And although he is in charge of giving them Holy Spirit-inspired instruction, these are the words of God that he speaks to them, yet he's very personal in his appeal to them. This is a church that Paul loved, and that's because these were people that helped him. And uh, I guess you could say in a human way of speaking that Paul really had a soft spot for Philippi, and it was a church that he really did love, uh, and probably one of the favorite places that he ministered to. But there is a lot of doctrine in the book, and even though there's doctrine and Paul is personal and reflective in many things that he says, he still has that teaching character about him all the time where he thinks like this, I must give them doctrine. I mean, that's what I've got to do. I've got to teach them doctrine. And it's really quite different from teaching and preaching that we have today because most preachers today think, well, I have to give them tutti-frutti and I have to give them chocolate candy and I have to give them popcorn And so most of our preaching today is really nothing more than mushy sentimentality because the people can't handle it, and I suppose the preachers can't either. And so this is part of the problem we start talking about contentment because people just do not look at contentment the way that Paul looks at it. We think about contentment as being those things that are pleasing to the flesh. How can I stuff myself with more things? And how can I gather all these material things to me? How can I add junk on top of junk to all the things that I have in my life? And then also, how can I take all of my problems away so I never never have to worry about any problems? And yet we notice that as Paul writes this, that he's really not concerned about problems. He's not worried whether he is problem-free. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we were studying verses 6 and 7 in Philippians chapter 4. And there Paul said, let your requests be made known unto God. And we would suppose that naturally that he would follow that up. Let your requests be known and then God will give you everything that you want. But that's not what Paul says and that's not what prayer is for. Uh, Christians think that our, our prayer time is a time to present a Christmas list to God. And our contentment is based upon how many things that God gives us off of that list. But Paul never said that God is going to give you things, at least not everything. He will give you something. 
He will give you contentment. He'll give you some peace to go along with your problems. He never promised that he would take all problems away, but he did promise that he could give you his peace that will enable you to go through those problems, and thereby, of course, you will have contentment. That's with that in mind that I want to look at this text tonight. It comes in, a, in the middle of a longer section that is a personal reflection on Paul's love for the Philippians, and that's because he was very grateful for their support and the way they helped him, and he just commends their Christian spirit in their giving. And this comes in the middle of speaking about the subject of contentment, and yet this verse, Philippians 4.13, is one that is often, and I would say even most often, pulled out of its context and greatly misused. So this evening, I really don't want to read all of the verses that surround this, but I do want you to know that the context of what Paul says is very important, and we will refer to that. The context of the statement is important because you can't get the real meaning of what Paul is talking about unless you understand the context. I'm not going to ask you to stand tonight. We have just this one verse that all of you are familiar with, Philippians 4.13, where Paul says, "...I can do all things through Christ." which strengtheneth me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given us, and we thank you, Lord, for your word and what we learn from it. And most of all, Lord, we do want to understand your word so that we do take it in its context and we don't pull things out and misrepresent them. And we do very clearly want to understand what Paul says when he talks about doing all things through you. So bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've ever been given scripture memorization in Sunday school, or if you've ever just gone through the Bible looking for easy verses that you can remember, well, surely you have added Philippians 4.13 to your repertoire. This is a very famous verse, one that's easy to remember. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And perhaps it might be better stated and a little more clear in meaning if we were to say, I can do all things in Christ which strengtheneth me. And that clears up the meaning just a little bit because Christ is not a power dynamo that you need to use or whenever you have a problem that you pull Christ out, you plug him into the wall, and then he comes and he takes care of all of your problems. Through Christ might give us that kind of an indication that we go through our days where we're like the mild-mannered Clark Kent And then whenever we really need something and there's a problem that's going on, that we find us a phone booth and we jump inside and change into the cape and the leotards. And what we've done then is we've just pulled Christ out and we've added him on to what we're about to do. And so now we're powerful and we can do things through Christ who strengthens us. Now, I hope you really understand what I'm trying to say there because the real important part of this A particular verse is not that word through, but might be better said, in Christ. Because if you're a Christian, you are always in Christ. You're never outside of him. And so your whole life is moving within his sphere. And so a better analogy, I think, perhaps would be bubble boy rather than Superman, because you're always in Christ's bubble. You know, that reminds me of a couple of years ago, we took a trip to Tucson, And some of you may be familiar with this, but there's a place there in Tucson called Biosphere 2. All of you ever heard of that before? Well, Biosphere 2 is this huge complex that is sort of a self-contained earth in a bubble. It's totally sealed off, and the intention was that they would put some people in there. And In fact, they they put eight people inside of this, this 
huge building that's completely sealed off from the outside world. And the idea was that they would live in that bubble. They would grow their food and they would make their water. The plants that were inside would provide all of the oxygen. And it would just be a self-contained ecosystem and they'd never have to go outside. Well, eventually all of that broke down. And uh, probably the most impressive part, impressive part of that was the people that they put inside because it didn't take very long because they were all at each other's throats. They couldn't get along being locked inside that place for so long. And so the whole system kind of broke down. I wasn't really wasn't supposed to tell you that part because it ruins my analogy. But the point is that they were contained inside. They moved inside of that place and that, that was their world. It was all inside of that. And that's exactly what it's like when you're a Christian. You are inside of Christ. We move in him. And he's never something that's tacked on to the outside of us. Now, that'll help you a little bit to get the picture as we get started on this first point tonight. Point number one is the wrong eye. And I call this delusion. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, Philippians 4.13, as I said, is a, a verse that's taken out of its context and it's used for a lot of different things. One of my favorite football players is Tim Tebow, who's the quarterback of the Florida Gators. Now, being from Kentucky, Jared's already upset back there, uh, being from Kentucky and, and uh, having a school in the SEC, you never want to say that you like the Florida Gators. But I like Tim Tebow. I don't like the team, but I like Tim Tebow. A couple of years ago, he was the Heisman Trophy winner, I believe, and Tim Tebow is just really a fine Christian young man. His parents are Baptist missionaries uh, to the Philippines, and Tim Tebow was born there, and he grew up in a preacher's house. And the remarkable thing about him is he's not one of those kids that kind of strayed away from his upbringing. He's, he's always been consistent with this, that, that he stayed true to what he learned, and he is a Christian. He constantly models Christ. And they've done many, many different interviews with his, with his team. And, and to a man, all of them say that Tim Tebow lives out his Christianity. He doesn't pretend to be something that he's not. He is a true Christian. One of the things that he does is that he puts Scripture verses on these black patches that he put under, puts under his eyes. Now, football players, you'll see that sometimes, baseball players and so forth, that they put these black things, black patches underneath their eyes to block the glare of the sun or stadium lights. But on those black patches, what Tim Tebow does, he, he writes on them with white letters, Scripture verses. And so when you see him on television and they do a close-up of him, you can very clearly read those Scripture verses or those Scripture uh, references. I was watching the Kentucky-Florida game a few weeks ago, and I noticed what Tim Tebow had under his eyes. He had Isaiah 40, verse number 31. That verse says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. That's a great scripture verse. But one of the ones that he commonly puts underneath his eyes is this verse, Philippians 4.13. Now, as I said, Tim Tebow is a wonderful man. I've, I've never talked with him. I've heard about his testimony, but I'm not sure that he knows the context of Philippians 4.13. Now, I know that he probably puts that scripture verse under his eyes because he wants to play well. He believes that he can win. He, he's a winner in life. He can struggle against great odds, and he can accomplish great things because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that's a great thought. But it's not the context of the verse. The context is about contentment. 
And the context goes back to verse number 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul means that because I am in Christ, I can be content even though I'm put down. I might be hungry. I might be in prison. I can endure that and I can be content because Christ sovereignly controls my life. And then on the other hand, he says that I can, be, uh, I can maintain my integrity and I, I won't become greedy. I don't become self-dependent when I'm in the prosperous times because everything that I have comes from Christ. He is the source of all that I have. But I've heard preachers that'll take this verse and they use it as if Christ exists to empower the Christian to get what he wants. That Christ does this, he enables me to have a successful life. Christ exists to make me feel good about myself. He's here to make me happy. He exists to give me all of the externals so that my life is calm seas and smooth sailing. And they are deluded because they've taken the I and they concentrate on the I instead of on Christ. Now, I don't believe that Paul intends to shove all of our attention towards him. He intends to magnify Christ as the source of contentment and the reason that he carries on without complaint, no matter what the world throws at him. So I believe there's delusion, and there's some things that we need to do with this eye. Now, the first one is that we need to turn off the mind control. Turn off the idea that I can do anything that I want if I just put my mind to it. Now, if the emphasis is on the I, and that's wrong, it becomes, here is what I want to accomplish. I'm going to pull out this little power pack of Christ, and I'm going to use him. I'm going to plug him in and use him until I get what I want. A couple of months ago, we were at the men's retreat, and there was a man who came along with uh, Hans Kirsch, and he gave me a CD to listen to with a great message on it. And it addressed a whole lot of issues concerning this thing of what I deserve mentality. And there were a lot of other things that were on there as well. And in one part of this message that was on the CD, the speaker is talking about how that preaching today has become very humanistic. And he's not talking about people that are way out there on the fringe somewhere that have no ideas about the faith, but he's talking about fundamental preachers. I mean, preachers who are supposed to know the truth and are fundamental in their doctrine. But what they have done is they have degraded the gospel into humanistic teachings. And he makes a great statement, among many great statements, and one that I thought was kind of amusing. But he said that the gospel is preached this way, that if you will trust Christ... I promise you that you'll be able to go to heaven and God will put springs on your wagon so your ride here is easy as you go, that it's comfortable. And the idea is that we sell people a doctrine of salvation that says it's all about your happiness. Promise people heaven, tell them they're going to have a happy life and tell them that's what it's all about, that salvation is what you really need because that's what's going to make you so happy. And that is exactly the kind of salvation that people want. They want to center all of this in I. They have the I wrong, and so the ultimate goal of everything is me. How can I be happy? But Paul doesn't intend to focus on the I, but rather on Christ. And the goal of salvation is not our happiness. It's the glory of God. Now, let me show you, though, how people twist this, and they make Christ into that little power plug that you just pull out to sort of juice you up. If you listen to the faith healers and the Pentecostal power people and the word of faith people, that's exactly what they do. They're insistent about this, that if your faith is great enough, 
If you just have enough faith, if it's great enough, then there will be no sickness in your life. You won't have any bills that are left unpaid. You'll, you'll walk wherever you go on holy ground, and people will nearly worship the ground that you walk on. You can do all things, they say. All that you have to do is just put your mind to it. Muster up the faith, pull up your faith, because you have the power to do it. Now, have you ever thought about that? That that's really nothing very much different than the mind games of Eastern mysticism. It's not very much different from that at all. The power is in your mind. All you have to do is think about this hard enough. Have enough faith. Do this, and you can have the power to do what you want to do. And so you can look at these Eastern mystics, and you can watch them, and they'll go over here, and they'll lay down on a bed of nails because they got the power in their mind to do that. You can go to a South Sea island and watch some guy walk across a bed of hot coals because he's blocked that out and he's got his mind that he can do that. And all that it really is is similar to a misuse of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. So I can leap tall buildings in a single bound. I can catch a bullet in my teeth. And I can do this. I can get up from that wheelchair and I can throw my crutches away and I can walk. But that's not what Philippians 4.13 is about. What we have to do is turn off the mind control and we must turn on the master's control. Paul does not mean to say here, I am using Christ to further my ends. He's saying that Christ is using me to glorify him and to further his kingdom. Now, you see the difference in that? And that's why Paul, whether he's in prison or whether he's in paradise, it makes no difference Because personal happiness is not his goal. And so he says, whatever state I'm in, therewith I have learned to be content. And you could probably best recognize that principle in a a passage of Scripture that you've heard many, many times. You can probably quote it. And that's in Psalm chapter 23. And there David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And we notice there that David did not say, Lord, take away the evil. And he didn't say, I can conquer evil. He said, I will fear no evil. And why? Because thou art with me. I'm in Christ. He's strengthening me. And notice what he says in the next verse. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And so the enemies aren't gone. God hasn't taken the enemies away. The adversity of the circumstance is still there. Listen to what Spurgeon says about it. He says, nothing is hurried. There is no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door. And yet God prepares a table. And the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. Oh, the peace which Jehovah gives to his people even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. So Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Isaiah wrote, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Now, if we're not careful, we take Philippians 4.13, and we start to sing with Sinatra, I did it my way. I used Christ to get me where I wanted to go, and we're deluded about the subject of the sentence. Now, if you look at that, look at Philippians 4.13. Grammar rules will tell you that I is the subject of that sentence. And I'm never going to argue with that grammatically because certainly it is. But spiritual rules say that Christ is the subject of the sentence. And I would argue with you all day long that Paul means to say, I did it his way. 
Well, there was another interesting comment in that sermon that was given to me by Ron Bianco at the men's retreat. He was dealing, the speaker on the, on, in, this, uh, on this, in this sermon was dealing with a completely different verse than we're using here. But I thought that the comments that he made were very appropriate for this discussion. He was speaking about a Chinese Christian man who had visited the United States. And this man was asked, what was it that impressed him most about America? And the Chinese man said, well, the thing that impressed me most is how much that American Christians can do for God without God. And then the preacher and the message went on with an illustration about a preacher boy who had come to him and asked him how that he could get power into his sermons. Now, I'm going to stray away from uh, that preacher's original intent, and I'm going to throw my interpretation in on what he said. But I thought it was kind of an interesting question because this young preacher boy had already built a, a large Sunday school, and he'd already built a huge church. He already had lots of programs that were in place. He'd already accomplished a lot of different things, but he was just then asking the question, how can I get power into my sermons? And you look at that and you say, well, how much had he done without God? And people wonder about this. You know, they say, well, why isn't Berean Baptist Church a bigger church? Why Why isn't it that we're adding 100 new people a year? And why aren't we as big as that church up in Santa Rosa that had to go to the Luther Burbank Center in order to hold all the people? Well, you want to know why? Because I'm not interested in building anything that God doesn't build. Now, if we decide to change the message and get away from God's message, I, I promise you we could, we could fill up this building. Let us concentrate on, on this, that we're going to make Brian Baptist Church the neighborhood center. And we're going to invite everybody to come in, and it'll be the community church, and, and we'll just have the programs that everybody likes, and we'll tickle everybody's ears, and we'll give them exactly what they want, and I promise you we can fill the place up. And you remember when I told you what that young person said who was interviewed about why they like to go to that church up there? This person said, well, I like it because it's not too religious. And you wonder, well, who's, who's doing the building there? And they say, well, the messages are relevant. The messages are fun. They're exciting. And they say that as if what we need to do is change this old message that we're preaching, one that's 2,000 years old, and go with something else because it's not effective enough to bring people into the church. Folks, how much we have deluded ourselves when we change the focus on that little word I in Philippians 4.13. And lots of times it really amounts to doing God's work without God. Look how much we can do for Christ without Christ. So here was this young preacher, and he'd built all these things up. There was a Sunday school. He had the church. He had the programs. But just then, he came along asking, how can I get more power into my sermons? Now, why do you suppose that after building the programs, building the church up, and having all the people that were attended, that he was just now asking, how can I get power in my preaching? Well, the obvious answer to that question is, he wanted more power to further his own purposes. He just needs more power because he'd reached the end of what he could do on his own. So in order to further his purposes a little bit more, he begins to ask for the power of God, of the Holy Spirit in his sermons. You know, it's kind of like that guy that Jesus was talking about who had all of his barns filled with plenty, and he went and tore down his barns and built bigger barns because everything was all about him. It was nothing about God and helping people with what God had given. It was all to build bigger barns for himself. 
Now, that's the problem of being deluded and getting the wrong focus on the word I in Philippians 4.13. And it's what happens when you take it out of the context. Because what happens when you take it out, then Philippians 4.13 helps you to win ball games. It makes your wagon ride a little bit smoother. It makes you prosperous. It makes you happy with all the stuff that you've added to your life. When in reality, you're supposed to be in Christ. And you're supposed to be moving in his sphere, in his bubble. Now that brings me to the second part of the message, which is the right eye, which is infusion. Now perhaps I've said enough of the negative side that I've given you enough information about the positive side. But when you put the emphasis of Philippians 4.13 in the correct way, it changes the ball game. And that's pun is intended there. It changes the motive. And what it does, it puts you on the same path with Jesus. Now, I've told you on numerous occasions the many times that Paul uses the word walk to describe the Christian life. To Paul, it's always walking, 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 walking in the Spirit, walking in Christ and walking here and, and doing all these things. And the walk that he speaks of is not a solitary stroll for a Christian where you just go through life and you're skipping and jumping along and you're smelling the roses and filling up all of your personal desires. That's the wrong eye that we were talking about in part number one. But as we think about that, that we are in Christ, and we move and have our being inside of him, we can also have the completely wrong idea about it when we think that the Christian life is nothing but Christ. When it's nothing but Christ, then you have been obliterated. Your personality is gone, and all your faculties are robotically controlled, and your walk becomes monergistic. Now, you may not understand the word monergistic, so let me just explain to you what I mean when I say that. Monergism simply means that the Holy Spirit working apart from human will in regeneration. And that is the only part of your salvation that is monergistic. Your walk with Christ is not monergistic. It's synergistic. Your walk with him involves you. And Christ does not take you over through the Holy Spirit, then dump your personality and make you a member of the Stepford community. You walk with Christ. So there are two of you. You aren't gone. You're just, you've just been infused with a new life. And what you do is you desire to walk in the same paths that Christ walks. Now, some people completely miss some of these things that I'm talking about because they look at this redirection that I've tried to give to the church where we get away from this thing called a rules-based sanctification and they have the idea that what the pastor has done, that now the preacher says, well, anything goes. Now we can do anything that we want. Uh, We have no rules against anything. And they interpret that to mean that now we're free to walk after the old man. We're free to just do what we always did. And they really don't understand that I'm not talking in that way at all. That's not the point of my sermons. My point is that we're free to walk with Christ. We're not free to walk with the old man. We're free now to walk with Christ. And you don't have to have a rule to do that. You don't have to have a rule to enforce to cause you to walk with Christ. When you get saved, you want to do that. For me to live is Christ, and I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And so your desire is to walk with him. My contentment is to walk in the same direction that he's going. Getting rid of sanctification by rules is never intended to degrade anyone. It's intended to elevate you to a whole different plane of spiritual living. 
But if you get it wrong and you take Philippians 4.13 in the wrong way and you make the I, the grammatical center of that verse and the subject of the verse and also the spiritual subject of it, then you've got things wrong. We're supposed to be walking with Christ. That's two of us headed in the same direction. Now, that's the positive side of it dealt in a negative way. So let me give you the positive side in a positive way. What do you get when you get the I right? What do you get? Well, here's what you get, first of all, victory over depression. Prison is a depressing place, isn't it? I'm not talking, of course, about those who are put in prison for all the wrong reasons. I mean, they're axe murderers and serial killers and thieves and all that kind of thing. If a person gets put into prison for that, then, well, he should be depressed, and I hope he stays that way until he gets straightened up. But Paul wasn't in prison for wrong reasons. Paul was put in prison because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at that, we say, well, he's not there for a just cause. He hasn't really done anything wrong. He's there for preaching the gospel. And if you're thrown in prison doing the highest calling that God could ever give a person, it's really not depressing. Paul wasn't depressed because he had victory over it. That's because his contentment was in Christ and not the circumstance. And you hear me going over that and over it and over it again, that we're not controlled by circumstance. And I have to keep saying it again, because that is the theme also of Philippians 4.13. Paul is speaking of contentment when he says, I can do all things through Christ. He means, I can be content in Christ in all situations. That's what the real meaning of it is. I'm content no matter what the circumstance. It's not really about how many people that he could heal with his handkerchiefs. And it wasn't about how many demons that he could cast out and how many languages that he could supernaturally speak. It was about contentment. And so it ended his depression because he had been instructed in the ways to be content. And that's exactly what it says in verse 12. He said, I've been instructed in this. He'd learned how to get out of depression. And he learned it by seeing that Christ was central and not him. And so that means that, yes, you could be content without a job, you can be content without a house, and content without a car. doesn't mean you ought to lie down and take it and not try to do something better for yourself, but it means that you don't find your contentment in those things. Your contentment is found in Christ. And when you start thinking that way, you have victory over depression. The second thing that you get out of this is you get victory over temptation. You know what temptation is? It really just comes down to this. Temptation is the desire to satisfy self. I mean, why does a person get involved in sex and drugs and alcohol and all the vices of the world? Why does he do that? Well, it's because he wants to satisfy himself. The pleasures of sin are good for the moment, and so he wants to to enjoy that. It feels good. And when you get angry at someone, you lash out at them and you speak harshly to them because they've upset you. Why do you do that? Well, you do it because you're trying to satisfy yourself. You, you, you shouldn't be treated that way. And you demand not to be treated that way. And so you lose your temper with someone. But when you're in Christ and you understand what Philippians 4.13 is, you learn to resist the temptation because when you understand that your life is to glorify God, that is a way higher aspiration than satisfying yourself. Glorifying God is way above self. Sin offends the holiness of God. It can't glorify him. And so if the eye is right and the eye is Christ or it's focused on Christ and not on the satisfaction of sin, then you are repulsed by sin as much as God is repulsed by sin. 
And why is that? It's because you're on the same path as Christ. And so you can't go out here and hang around with the wrong crowd when the eye is right. I know know what somebody's probably thinking about that, and you hear it all the time. People say, well, oh, well, Christ hung out with sinners. He hung out with prostitutes, and he, he was around that kind of crowd all of the time. And maybe you missed the part then where I said that there are two of you. There are you and Christ. If Christ took over your will, like we were talking a moment ago, and obliterated your personality, if he destroyed your person in the process of saving you, then yes, you could sit down with sinners all day long. And you you could enjoy sinners every day and not be affected by it. But that's not the way it is. There are two of you, and you are not Christ, and Christ is not you. So you need not think that you can plant yourself down in the middle of temptation and get away with it. You can't do it. Now, what you will be able to do is walk the same path that Christ is walking and resist the temptation and resist being drawn back into those issues of self-centrality. So victory over temptation comes when you get the eye right. The third thing that you get out of this is victory over expectations. Now, here's probably the key statement about real contentment. You have victory over expectation. And this is the opposite of the pie in the sky word of faith movement. It's the opposite of self-help and the opposite of self-esteem. It's the opposite of man-centered theology because it takes us right back to that old familiar scripture in Philippians 1 verse 29 about being designed for the sufferings of Christ. And so it even goes back to the beginning of the message where where I started. If the gospel is preached wrongly and you sell a sinner a bill of goods that says that here's what you're going to get. You're going to get this happy life. You're never going to be miserable. You're never going to have a problem. Everything's all hunky-dory. And you sold them this bill of goods, a problem-free Christianity. What do you think is going to happen to that person? Well, they're going to end up depressed, like I talked about at the very beginning, because their expectations were completely wrong. They looked for all the wrong things. They had been instructed by your presentation of the gospel, if you give it that way, that personal happiness is what you expect from your salvation. And when you give people the wrong expectation, it's not going to be long before they start to fall out of that that good feeling that they have when they got saved and they become depressed about that. But what if you tell them the truth about salvation as Paul presented it? And he said when you get saved that you're going to be mocked and you're going to be hated. You'll be reviled even as Christ was reviled. You know, from there, the good things that happen to you are way above your expectation, aren't they? You tell people the truth about this, and along with that, you tell them that in your trials and in your heartaches and in your problems of serving Christ, that you'll also get God's contentment. You'll get God's peace, and there'll be victory in your life. Now, you've been instructed correctly when someone tells you that, and you get the eye correct. So the result of this is that you don't go along singing every day, well, I did it my way. You sing, I did it his way. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And so that really means that I can be content to be abased in poverty, and I can be content to abound in prosperity. It makes no difference because it's all to the glory of God. And so my desire... In short here, is not to make Christ that power plug that can further my ends, and I am going to get my peaceful contentment from all the good things that I can add to my life. My contentment comes from furthering the sovereign plan and purposes of God. 
I can do all things through Christ means that I will be used by Christ for his purpose, not that I will use Christ for my purpose. Do you understand the difference in that? That's what Philippians 4.13 is really talking about. That's the context. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we spent together in your word and how important it is for us to clearly understand what your word is teaching so that we don't get all confused and mixed up and misapply your scriptures and give people false hopes and false expectations. But Lord, our, our greatest expectation is to be able to serve you and the promise that you bring contentment in that no matter what is going on around us. Help us to find our peace in you, Lord, and not the things of this world. Bless in this time tonight that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.